Good morning, everybody. We are in the middle of a, of a series of lessons about meeting Jesus. And what we're doing is we're looking at different people that met Jesus. And what we're trying to do is see what we can learn about Jesus from those encounters. This week, we're going to be looking at a guy who was asking Jesus for a sign. Has anybody here ever asked God for a sign? Ah, yeah. See, asking for a sign seems to be something we can all relate to, right? Well, let's see what we can learn from this guy. It's a very short passage. You'll find it over in Luke chapter 23, verses 8 through 9. It goes this way. It says, Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. For he wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. Okay, now this seems like just a short paragraph on some facts, but I think there's actually some things here that we can learn about. First of all, I mean, the the first big question that we ought to ask is, why was Herod looking for Jesus to perform a sign? To get to that, see, we're not told specifically why. So we have to kind of guess. But I think there's enough information about Herod in the Bible that we can get a pretty close idea as to what he might have been up to in this encounter with Jesus. This guy named Herod. There was a lot of different guys that were named Herod in the Bible. I don't know if you know much about history and how this all worked, but the first guy that you meet in Scripture known as Herod was Herod the Great. Now, Herod was one of these politician types, and he became the official king of Israel by Rome. Rome appointed this guy. He was a genius, and he was murderous and deceitful and terrible. Uh, He was ruthless, but he was a master architect. He built things like crazy. He's the guy that you read about in the first part of the Gospels that tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. Well, he had several sons. When he died, Rome said, okay, well, we're going to carve up Israel into about four chunks, and we're going to part it out amongst four of his sons. The Herod in this passage is Herod Antipas. And he was one of the four sons that inherited the rulership of a chunk of Israel. He was actually given Galilee and Perea. Now, if you can think of a map, I don't know how solid you are on geography, but if you can kind of think of Israel, Galilee was that lake that was up north, connected by the Jordan River, which went all the way down to the Dead Sea, and Jerusalem was kind of in between the two points. Now, over on the eastern side of the Jordan was Gentile area called Perea. Jesus and his disciples spent a chunk of time there. But guess where their home base was? Galilee. So this Herod would have been in charge of the area where Jesus was doing a lot of his ministry. See, Herod, why did he want to see a sign from Jesus? Herod already knew all about Jesus. He knew about Jesus because, I mean, Jesus had done all kinds of signs. In fact, one of the gospel writers said that if they wrote down everything that he said and did, the world couldn't hold all the books that could be written. So Jesus was performing signs all over the place. This could not have escaped Herod's attention. In fact, if you look over at Luke chapter 9, verses 7 and 9, it says there, Now Herod the Tetrarch, by the way, Tetrarch is a ruler of a fourth of a kingdom. He was one of four guys. His three other brothers shared this title with him. Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I have heard such things? And he kept trying to see him. 
See, Herod knew all about Jesus. He had heard about all the different miracles that he had performed, all the different signs he had given. And I'm pretty sure he was familiar with what Jesus was teaching. And he wanted to meet Jesus. And so all this time, during the three-year span of Jesus' ministry, Herod was trying to figure out some way to meet him. Now, he mentions John the Baptist. He had John the Baptist beheaded. Before he had John the Baptist beheaded, he put him in jail. And he used to come and talk to John the Baptist all the time. Why did Herod put John in jail? Well, Herod decided that he didn't like his wife as well as he liked his brother's wife. Yeah, see, his brother Philip was another tetrarch and had basically a part of the kingdom that was in the northeast of that picture. And he decided, uh, Herodias, why don't you leave him, ditch him, and come with me? So he divorces his wife and sends her off, and he grabs his brother's wife. Well, now, John, he's like, you can't do that. That's rotten, man. You know, this is supposed to be God's country. You know, you're supposed to be representing all of us Jews. And the world's going to think you're bringing shame to our God. So he speaks up. And for this, he gets thrown in jail. But we're also told that Herod was afraid of John. He knew he was a righteous man. And so he kept going down to the prison and talking with John all the time. Do you think John might have told him something about Jesus? Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. If he had the guts to tell him, you know, you're, you're, you're an adulterer. I think he also said, you know, it matters because the king is here. The real king is here. Your dad didn't get him. He's actually alive. He had not only heard about Jesus from John, he had also heard him from a guy named Chusa. Uh, In Luke chapter 8, verse 3, we find out that he had a, a steward. You know what a steward is, right? It's somebody that basically handles your property for you. His chief steward, it reads this way. This guy, Chusa, had a wife that was prominent in Jesus' ministry. It says this, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, among many others, were contributing to their support out of their private means. So this guy that's very close to Herod and works for Herod as a steward has a wife who supported Jesus' ministry. Now, what I'm trying to establish here is that Herod knew all about Jesus. He had first-hand eyewitness accounts of all the signs and miracles that he had done. So now let's come back to this idea of why did he come to Jesus and ask for him to perform a sign? I'm guessing that he wasn't looking for some sense of direction. I'm also guessing that he wasn't looking for some sort of confirmation. He wasn't looking to say, hey, are you really who you are? That had already been established. So what's the other third option? I think Herod wasn't looking for... Jesus to point him in the right direction. He wasn't looking for a sign to point him in the right direction. He wanted Jesus to give him a command performance. How often does that happen? Do you think this only happened with Herod? I think it happens more often than we think about it. See, he wanted Jesus to do something for him. Uh, We know that what he wanted him to do is he wanted Jesus to serve him. You've done this miracle for somebody else. Why don't you do this miracle for me? And Jesus didn't give him anything. Jesus didn't even answer him. Now here's Jesus, and he's done so many thousands of these miracles and signs, and the guy who could actually get him out of jail, and even maybe confirm to everybody else that he is who he says he is, he doesn't say a word. Why would he not prove himself to Herod? Why would he refuse to give him a sign? Again, we're not told, but my guess is that Jesus came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, not to give command performances. 
Jesus always told people when he healed them not to tell anybody. Did you ever catch on to that? As you're reading through the Gospels, how many times did he you know, heal somebody and say, okay, great, don't tell anybody I did that? That's a little confusing. If he's wanting to get the word out that he's the king, that he's from God, you'd think he'd want him to say, yeah, look what I can do. Boom. Right? But he didn't do signs for that reason. He did signs to say, you can trust what I'm going to tell you. And see, I think he told people not to tell anybody what he had done because Jesus seems to always want to attract a God-seeking crowd, not a sign-seeking crowd. See, there are a lot of people in religion today and all across this country today, there are people that are flooding into churches looking for Jesus to do something for them. They come in in some way or another, they're kind of looking for a sign. But how many of them are actually coming to hear the gospel? See, coming to listen to the gospel, the signs were there to say that you can trust this gospel message. And that gospel message changes everything. Because it's no longer, once you know that Jesus is who he says he is, it's not about what you can do for me, Jesus. It's about what do you want me to do for you. See, Herod didn't have it right. Herod knew all the signs. He knew that Jesus had to be from God. But he didn't come to Jesus to say, what do you want from me? What does God want from me? He came to Jesus to see what Jesus would do for him. I think that this is a part of our religious landscape today. We've got people that that advertise Jesus, that try to get you to go to their church, that try to promote their church, their brand. And they try to say, look, if you'll come to Jesus, why? He'll make your life this. He'll do this for you. He'll do that for you. I even caught myself at one time giving the strong implication to people who had marriages that were in trouble to listen. If you'll become a Christian, Jesus will heal your marriage. Can Jesus heal a marriage? Yeah, he brings dead things back to life all the time. There's no problem with that, with that concept. But here's the problem, the way that I presented it. It was almost like, well, if you'll do this, then he'll do that. And I can't promise you what Jesus will do. I can tell you what he can do. But the point isn't what he's going to do for you. Because if he's really Lord, which I think he proved to Herod and everybody in that generation that he was Lord. If he's really Lord, then the question isn't what you'll do for me. The question is, what do you want me to do for you? And I think that's where we blow it with this sign thing so much. Not everybody blew it. Uh, hang on, some did. Let me, let me, I'm skipping over my notes. Let's look at Matthew 12, 38 through 42. See, the sign-seeking crowd, Herod wasn't the only one who came looking for a sign, asking Jesus to do something for them. Here's a... Here's a chunk of scripture that tells about when it happened again. In Matthew 12, 38 through 42, it says there, Then some of the Pharisees and scribes said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, why do you think they were asking for a sign? Again, it wasn't because Jesus hadn't given them enough signs to believe. They're wanting to test him. They're wanting him. They think they've got the right to tell him, You need to do this for me. But he answered to them and said, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now could you imagine? These guys are the religious elite. They're the ones who are in charge. They're the preachers and teachers of their day. And they're saying, listen, you're telling us everything's strange and different from what we've always believed. Give us a sign. And he says, you're an evil and an adulterous generation. Because you're asking me for a sign. I'll leave that. I'll come back to that first in a second. Verse 40 says... Jesus went on to tell them, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, 
so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. You guys are familiar with the story about Jonah, right? God said, listen, there's some some guys in Nineveh and they are really, really bad and I'm going to wipe them out. But I want to give them a chance. So I'm going to send you there to go talk to them. These weren't Jewish people. And uh, Jonah, I forgot his name, couldn't bring it up all of a sudden. Jonah said, I don't want to go. And so he tried to run away from God and he gets on a ship. You know, Nineveh's that way and he's on a ship headed that way. And so God sends a storm and they, they end up throwing Jonah off the boat and God arranges for a big fish to swallow him and swims him to Nineveh. How bad do you have to be that God has to do that to get you there? So the whale spits him up, or a fish spits him up, big fish, whatever it was, spits him up, and he comes out and he begrudgingly walks into Nineveh and says, God says he's going to destroy this place if you don't repent, and frankly, I hope he does. And then he walks out. And the, and the guys in Nineveh went, guys, we've got to get some things straight, and they repented. Boy, what a different generation. They didn't say to Jonah, hey, do a sign. Show us a miracle. What's in it for me? That's another idea behind this evil and adulterous generation seeking a sign because it really presumes what's in it for me. I don't think that I am not a Christian for what God's going to do for me. I used to be that way. But I've changed. I'm in this now because he's God. I'm going to serve him because he deserves it. What he does with me is his business. I want his agenda to come true. That's just where he's led me. And I hope he's leading some of you guys in that same place. And Jesus says, those guys got it right. They had the right attitude. They repented just because they were told what was right. They weren't looking for a sign. He goes on further and he says, the queen of the south will rise up with this generation. I think this is the queen of Sheba that he's referring to. At the judgment and will condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. It wasn't easy to get from the south to Jerusalem. Transportation was hard. And to be a queen and to leave your country and go that far away for that long a period of time was a huge sacrifice and put into a question a whole lot of how things are going to work out at home. Will you still be queen when you get back? She was willing to risk all of that because she wanted to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She didn't come to Solomon and say, hey, can you do a miracle? I heard you do clever tricks. I'd like to see that. She said, I need to hear the truth. I need to know what God wants me to do. And because of that, Jesus said that she would stand in condemnation, stand in judgment of the generation that he was dealing with. And he says it's because someone greater than Solomon is here. Someone greater than Solomon. Someone greater than Jonah is here. And yet, you want me to perform signs. You want to ask what it is I can do for you. You're motivated by what you can get out of this. And that's wrong. That makes you evil and adulterous. See, they got it backwards. Why was that generation evil and adulterous? They got it backwards. Who was supposed to be working for who? And I think that that's the landscape that we're in now in American churches. And we've got to guard against it, folks. You know, it's tough to stay on track with the journey if people keep telling you, oh, no, no, you need to go this way. You ever try to get somewhere and everybody's arguing about how to get there? Isn't it frustrating? And the tide and the current in our churches across this country today really appeal to what's in it for me. They preach what they call felt needs, which is to appeal to whatever need you're feeling you have. And I would suggest that there might be a problem with that, 
and I'm not the smartest guy, and I just got one opinion. You have to make up your own mind on this. But I certainly think there's this risk of changing the focus from what we're supposed to be doing for Jesus into asking him for a sign for what he can do for us. And if Jesus thought that was an adulterous and wicked, evil generation that was doing that, seems to me we ought to avoid that. Seems to me we need to get it straight. We need to understand who's supposed to serve who. Not everybody in Jesus' day got it backwards. There's one guy, actually I preached about him the last time that we were up here talking. His name was Nicodemus. He got it right. Look what it says about him over in John 3. Verses 1 and 2, he says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. That last passage in Matthew, it's the same crowd. It's the same Pharisees. He's one of those guys. But he had a different agenda. He had seen the signs, and now he was coming to Jesus with a different agenda, not to get Jesus to do something for him. He says to Jesus, he says, Rabbi, we know you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. He calls him teacher because he comes to learn to be taught. He comes expecting to be taught. In other words, he said, Jesus, you've already done enough to prove to me that you're from God. Teach me what I need to do. See, he got it right. This morning, where are you at? Are you more like Nicodemus or are you more like Herod? I think the fact that you're here tells me that you're a little bit more like Nicodemus than Herod. Okay? This is not one of these... You can't paint any one person all with one color. And we're growing and we're changing and we're learning all the time. And the reason why we get together and we look at these guys and these, these people that met Jesus is to learn how to go further and deeper. Christianity is called over and over a walk. Well, a walk is not that difficult to demonstrate. It's one intentional step followed by another, followed by yet another that takes you somewhere. And if you're somewhere on this journey, I'm just trying to call your attention back to let's get this thing straight about we need to be more like Nicodemus. We need to realize that Jesus is king. He's already done enough to prove that. We need to come to him not asking what he can do for us, but asking what he wants us to do for him. So how can you test where you're really at on this journey and how well you've got this incorporated into your thinking and into the way that, you, that you're doing your, your walk with Jesus? I've got a quick, simple test for you. How do you pray? Just look at your prayer life. I'm a, you guys pray, right? Man, you know, I do have to ask the question because, frankly, that's, that is part of the work of being a Christian is praying. And yet, man, it's like someone gave us atomic energy and we haven't learned how to throw the switch. And I think that's one of the things that stands in front of us as Christians and as a congregation of Christians is to really understand more about what the power of prayer is about and to pray better. So let's... let's Pick it out and look at it for a second here and just ask a question. How do you pray? What do what your prayers sound like? Have you ever written one down? It's not a bad idea. It takes some discipline that I don't have. But if, to write down your prayers. What I'd ask you to do is to see if you actually pray the way that Jesus taught us to pray. Look at what he says in Luke 11, verses 2 through 4. We were looking at this in the small groups that I get with. And uh, did the lights go out or am I losing my mind? They just went down. That's fine. I, I don't mind it. It's just that I wanted to make sure I wasn't about ready to fall over from, you know, you know sometimes things kind of dim down and boop, you go over. I just want to make sure that's not going to happen. Okay. Uh, else, with this lesson, you might think I'm giving you the wrong sign and God's punishing me. But 
Okay. So look what Jesus teaches them how to pray. It's in Luke 11, verses 2 through 4. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Okay, not to make this too complicated, but there's an oxymoron here. Calling God Father and also saying, you're hallowed. See, the first thing we need to get straight is our relationship with God. He's not our big buddy. I remember working with some young adults who used to pray, Hey God, that's how they would they'd start their, uh, their prayers. Hey God. And they didn't mean anything by it, but I had to kind of convince them, Look, he's a little bit more important than that. And yet he is someone that we've been invited to talk to. We don't have to be afraid of him, but we need to respect him. And we need to see him for who he is. See, again, this is, I think, a real big struggle in our landscape right now. We've turned God into your big buddy. All of our, you could listen to Christian radio and just see how many of these songs give you the idea that you're the center of his plan. You're precious. You're perfect. You're this. You're that. It's a very ego-boosting generation of Christianity we've got. The problem is, is God's at the center of everything, not us. We fit into his plan. He doesn't fit into ours. And I think the way we start our prayers and how we address God might help us to keep that part straight. So it's our Father who's hallowed. Your kingdom come. The first request is what? Your kingdom come. Here's what I want you to ask yourself. Is that really the first thing you ask God for? Do you ask God to do his will? Do you ask God for his kingdom to come? It'll tell you something about whose agenda is more important to you. Yours or God's. See now, I was dealing with this in our small group and I looked at it and I, had to, I went, oh man, I blow this. Because I, I, probably like most of you, whenever I start off, it's, Heavenly Father, thank you, and what can you do for me? Right? I need this. I need to quit this sin. I need forgiveness. My, my prayer life was really mostly about me and my agenda. And I started looking at this and going, oh man, I think I've blown past a couple of signposts. And now all of a sudden I might be drifting off course because I'm not following the right sign. And so we, we talked about it and we all agreed in our groups we were going to change this around. We were going to start when we pray together, boom, out of the gate. Bring your kingdom. Man, the more you find out about what God's kingdom is, what it's about, what it's like, what he's up to, who wouldn't want that? It's about bringing heaven here. Who wouldn't be for that? So I started changing that in my prayers. And you know what? It's actually helped me to remember who's God. And as I'm asking the guys in my group, how's this affecting the way you're praying? Guys, you're here. Is it changing the way you pray? Yeah, it's bringing some things into focus. What's the second request that Jesus tells us to make? Give us each day our daily bread. Why doesn't he say, ask God that you'll never be hungry? I can think of other things I'd rather eat besides bread. Although, I used to work at a Catholic hospital... And those sisters, man, they could make some bread. That's a meal. I don't know how they made it. Each slice of bread was like four pounds. And whenever it came out hot out of the oven, I was hanging around and with a stick of butter. I just, I just wanted that more than I would have wanted anything else. So sometimes bread can be pretty good. But back to this, give us our daily bread to me seems to be implying just give me enough to fulfill your mission. See, God uses us to bring his kingdom, doesn't he? And so just those two first pieces, test yourself. Do you pray like that? If you don't, 
you may be moving down the scale more towards Herod than Nicodemus. You may be blowing past some signs and you may find yourself getting off track. You may start slipping into this, hey God, me, 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 and your agenda may be just a little too much more important than God's agenda. So here's my, here's my challenge. If that's where you are this morning, would you change how you pray? I'd like to try to, I'd, I'd like to convince you, if I could, just to ask you and put this on you, would you make that change this week? Just, just try it for seven days. When you pray, remember to ask God to bring his kingdom. And then ask him for the things that you need from him in order to get that job done. See, he's Lord, which means he's kind of like our master. And masters, any good master is going to feed his workers and give them the tools to do the job he wants done. If you just do those two things, there's more there. There's a lot more I can teach you. More I'm trying to learn. But I want to challenge you to try that and to see how that might change you and see how it might change your ability to see the things that God's doing. See, I think God gives us signs all the time. But sometimes our ability to see those signs isn't as good. Now, what did Jesus mean whenever he said that he was only going to give these guys one sign? Now, he had given thousands. They said, I'm only going to give you one sign, and it's a sign of Jonah. What did he mean by that? He was talking about the resurrection. Just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, Jesus was going to be three days in the belly of the earth. And just like Jonah made an appearance in Nineveh, Jesus came back. Okay, so when I asked at the beginning of this lesson, how many of you guys have asked God for a sign? Most of you said yes. I know some of you this morning are in bad places. And you're really looking for a sign. Here's your sign. The resurrection. See, I can tell you about the things that God's done in my life and how he's changed me. He's changed my character. He's changed what I want. Changed how I think. Certainly changed how I behaved. But I've shared that with other people and they said, well, how do you know that wouldn't have happened that way for you anyway? See, those kind of signs can be kind of subjective. I believe they're real and I believe that they're motivating and I think they're very reassuring. They kind of give me the idea that God's really there and that he's helping me out. I, I see his hand at work. But you know... Sometimes when you're going through something painful, it's tough to see those kinds of signs. If you haven't seen Jesus work in your life, you may not be aware of that. I used to box a little bit. And I found it really, really hard to focus on my opponent right after he had hit me in the nose. You ever been popped in the nose real good? Your eyes will swell up like those inflatable airbags in your car, like you've just hit something hard. And poof, and you're all squished up like it, and your eyes water. And it's hard to see what's in front of you. And I know this morning for a fact, some of you guys have been popped in the nose. Because life does that. You realize we're not the only team on the field. We have an enemy that wants to make it hard for you to see the signs. And wants to blur your vision. So this morning, you may not be able to see everything that Jesus has done. You may not be able to feel that or recognize it. But you know what? The resurrection isn't subjective. The resurrection isn't a small sign. The resurrection is this huge billboard that says it's a fact. So if you're looking for a sign this morning, if you're wondering what direction does God have for you, here's your sign. The resurrection of Jesus is that sign. What does that sign say? Well, Romans 1.4 says it this way. It says that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. 
according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The resurrection proved that Jesus was from God. That he was the son of God. If he's the son of God, is there any other voice we ought to worry about? Is there any other person we need to worry about pleasing? He says he's Jesus, Christ. Christ is the the Greek form of Messiah. The Messiah was the one who represented all of his people. Scripture unfolds that whatever is true of our Messiah is now true of us. And we're told that we are raised from the dead because he's been raised from the dead. Not fully, not finally, because we're still breathing oxygen. But yet we've already had this promise has come forward into our lives that we are a new creation now. Anybody here ever had to go to court and wonder how the judge was going to rule? I have. It's spooky. Even if you've got a slam dunk case, there's always a chance that somebody's going to rule against you. And God has been so gracious to tell us exactly how he's going to rule against us or for us in this case. Because of our faith, he's already told us that our legal status has changed. We're in the Messiah. And Jesus is also Lord. The resurrection proves that he's Lord. We don't use that word as much these days. We talk about landlords. We understand that a landlord owns the building. He can do whatever he wants to with it. But we say, especially religious ease, Christian ease, we say Jesus is Lord very flippantly. And what we really should be understanding is that Jesus owns us and he can do with us whatever he wants. See, this is a wholly different way. This is a different sign than do something for me. This is a sign that says, I'm yours to do with whatever you want. I know some of you guys are in painful things. You're going through some hard stuff. Some of you are just confused and don't know which way to go. But whatever you're going through, if it's the will of God, if it helps him achieve bringing his kingdom, and you know, he's able to do amazing things through some of the worst things that happen, doesn't that change how you look at what you're going through? I've often wondered, in the climate, the the religious climate that we're in today, this felt needs, Jesus loves you, and you're precious, and you're this, and you're that, and God's going to do this for you, and that for you, and the other thing for you, and maybe even help you win the lottery. In that kind of a climate that, that churches are trying to solicit people, I wonder, if that was the message they were giving in the first century, how did Christianity not die in Rome? You know what they did to our brothers and sisters there, don't you? They were so adamant about stamping out Christianity that they wouldn't just go after you and decide to torture you and see if they could get you to renege. They'd go after your wife and your kids. And they would peel the flesh from them in front of you. They would impale them. Nero used to put spikes all the way through their body, dip them in tar, and light his parties with Christians. And they did this in a very public way. There was also the arena. And the idea was to scare people and intimidate them into giving up, and they never would. But if you signed up thinking, this is what Jesus is going to do for me, I'm going to have this kind of a good thing, and he's going to do that kind of a good thing for me, Christianity looks like a horrible lie whenever you watch your family killed. I'm thinking that they weren't told God's going to be your great big Santa Claus. I think what they were told is Jesus actually rose from the dead. He's real. He's Lord. He is bringing his kingdom. It's a war, but it's already been won. Every major war there's ever been, there's been scattered fighting going on. Someone, there's always somebody who doesn't get the word. And we're still in that phase. The war has been won. Satan has been defeated. Death is the last victory that will be put under Jesus' feet. Everything else is there, according to Romans, or 1 Corinthians 15. 
His resurrection proved this. And that first century crowd understood that this was the message. And they understand, I'm his. I like what he's going to do. And whatever the world wants to do to me, that's okay because God will use it to further his kingdom. All I have to do is be faithful. Here's what this sign means for us today. Three things, three truths to remember about the resurrection. What that sign means. One, the tomb is still empty. 2,000 years they've not been able to produce a body. And I want to tell you, after he predicted that this would happen and that he would rise from the dead, everybody in the local government and the worldwide government was very heavily invested in proving that he did not do it. But that tomb, they couldn't prove it because he did rise from the dead. And it's still empty today. Second thing it proves, things to remember, Jesus is still Lord. He has all authority in heaven and earth. Who are we to be afraid of? What can happen to us in this world that that matters if we're his? Three, he requires all men and women everywhere to serve him. Again, what's so popular that I hear in, in Christian songs and in sermons on the internet and other places is that God wants to serve you. God wants to do this for you. God wants to do that for you. I believe that God blesses us and he does these amazing things in our lives if we've got the faith to see what he's doing. But he's not here to do that for us. He's, we're here to do whatever he wants us to do because it's so much bigger than our personal lives. What he's doing is so much bigger than our comfort, bigger than our bank account, bigger than our entertainment. He's Lord and he needs to be saved. And the resurrection, you want a sign. Whenever you can't see anything else because of whatever else is going on, remember the resurrection. That's a huge billboard to point you in the right direction. The tomb is still empty. Jesus is still Lord. And he requires all of us to serve him. And that will keep us moving forward, I think. So, we didn't take the Lord's Supper, but we're going to do that now. And I I was just thinking about what a sign the Lord's Supper is. You know, it says so many different things. It's, it's hard to sum up everything that we find in the Lord's Supper. But it points to the fact that Jesus died. He was resurrected. And through him we can have life. And every Sunday we get a chance to, to take this again. But here's the, here's the thing. We can look at this as a sign of what Jesus is going to do for us. Or we can use it to remind ourselves that we serve a risen king. And ask where he wants us to go. What he wants us to do. And what I hope to do is maybe even persuade you that this morning and every morning after this when we take the Lord's Supper together. That you'll look at it as a sign. To remind you of those same three truths that we just talked about. The tomb is still empty. You know when we do this we're saying we believe that tomb is empty. When we do this when we take these in we're saying that we believe that Jesus is Lord. And we're saying we believe that he is to be served. He requires everyone to serve him. And you know, a master doesn't expect his servants to work without feeding them. You ever tried to work on an empty stomach? It doesn't work too good. God has created this meal to sustain us. To nourish us. Because there's work to be done. Your job wasn't just to get in here this morning. Get a feel good. Show up. Your job is after you leave here. Really, it's all the time. 
And this is the sign that Jesus is real and that he's nourishing you. He's sustaining you for the work that he has to do. I just want to encourage you not to miss this sign, guys. Let's pray and we'll take the Lord's Supper together and then we'll wrap up.